I am thankful for this morning for the opportunity to share with you from the Old Testament prophet of Malachi. Uh, For me, this sermon has been several months in the making, and one that has really benefited from from Barbara and I's participation in a a small group that studied this, this book. Now, if I can just pause, I want to give a a shameless plug for small groups here at the church. Uh, If you have not been a part of a small group before uh, at our church here, then I would would strongly recommend you do so. If you have been a part of a small group, maybe at at another church, uh, I'm going to suggest that maybe your participation here is going to look a little bit different. Uh, These are intentional times, intentional studies, so you're not committing for the rest of your life. It's kind of four to eight weeks. They're seasonal, either by interest or just by saying, I don't know anything about this. I want to learn. And that for us was, for for most of us, was the case as we got into Malachi. It was a great great time of intentional community, of growing, of learning, and spending time with people that had been at our church who I knew very little of, maybe less than eight months, to those who had been a part of our church for 50 years. And so we had this wonderful cross-section coming together uh, around the commonality of God's Word as it's been revealed to us. Now, Malachi is a short book, just four brief chapters. Uh, And in those chapters are contained uh, the last words that God has given in the Old Testament. Upon the close of Malachi, 400 years of silence would ensue. It wouldn't be broken until the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, would come as a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, other than it being the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi is unique in the frequency with which it uses the term or the title for God, Lord of Hosts, Lord of Hosts. It's a title that's attributed to God in in. 17 other books of the Old Testament, but the frequency with which it is used in Malachi acts as an exclamation point. The word hosts is the title, is is a word that draws its meaning from the word armies. So so the hosts of Babylon, the, the hosts of Assyria that would come and devour the nations that were in front of them. It's an army that is strong and unstoppable and can wipe out its opponent, not because its opponent is weak, but because it is so strong. And we'll see in a book where the people are questioning God's character and his capacity. Using the title Lord of Hosts about himself is a significant one. Now, Malachi isn't a book that tends to get too much airtime as far as sermons are concerned. It's not a big book. Uh, and it's kind of unique in some of its offerings. So if you've ever heard a sermon from Malachi, it's likely you've heard one of the two, fo- one of the two following sermons. It's either been on tithing, or it's been on some sort of uh, maybe social justice oppression type is- issue. And, and those are right things that can be derived from the text. They, they are good things and fair things to be preached from. Though outside of the context of covenant in which Malachi is rooted, they might stand wanting. And it's the fidelity of the people of God concerning this covenant that underpins everything else in Malachi, and it's going to be the main thing that we're talking about this morning. So while I'll be speaking to uh, the book as a whole, 
I'm going to be reading from Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 16 to 4, verse 3. It can be found on page 802, and I'd ask that you open your Bibles uh, there this morning. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. And so as ones who are going to be reading this, knowing that these are the last words of God in the Old Testament, I think we can read them with a certain sense of of somberness and pause, Uh, just knowing where they come, knowing that after this, there would be silence. There would be silence, and then a new day would come. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together, as I read it and you follow along? Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch." But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. You may be seated as I pray. Father, we have read your word this morning, and in doing so, we have heard your voice. By your spirit, I pray that you would give us ears to hear with clarity this morning. I pray this not only for myself, but on behalf of our people. In the standing of Christ for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. Amen. Fear isn't the kind of thing we typically characterize as a good basis for a relationship. Whether it's fear of physical harm or, or the fear of relational separation or even the fear that, that access to assets may be restricted or taken away altogether. Fear is not something we know to be a healthy relational dynamic between two or more people. When fear is present in a family setting, this can result in manipulation, which is degrading at best to various forms of abuse, which is not only sinful but illegal at its worst. So it's hard for us to consider a relationship to be good when at its core, fear is required to be present. It just doesn't sync up with our modern understanding of how healthy relationships should be formed. And rightly so, rightly so. 
when we are talking about relationships between people. In relationships between people, we would want to see things characterized by, by a mutual love, by, by respect, by humility, by compassion, by caring for one another's needs. In fact, fear is so not a part of a healthy relationship that even if all of these other good things existed in a relationship, but fear was also present, we would be right to call pause. If he did things that showed you he loved you, but he hit you or he intimidated you, the latter actions nullify the former. If she shows you respect in public, but behind closed doors berates you and and threatens to leave with the kids if she doesn't get her way, the respect isn't real. If you have to walk on eggshells with a friend because one wrong word and and they'll snap at you and they'll freeze you out, the friendship is a facade. And so it sounds all the stranger to us to hear from the passage that we read this morning that the only ones who are heard by God and avoid his righteous judgment are those who fear him. It just doesn't strike our modern minds as the basis to a healthy relational dynamic. Isn't the answer always love? We're Christians, right? Isn't the answer always love? And if we were talking about a relationship with another person, that would be true. But as it relates to our relationship with the eternal creator of all things, the Lord of hosts, we learn from Scripture that both love and fear do exist together. They are codependent elements, sometimes even indistinguishable from one another as perfect stabilizing factors in our relationship with God. We get a glimpse of each one of these things in in other human relationships in healthy ways, of course. For example, we we fear people that have right authority over us. Uh, Maybe you've been driving, and uh, maybe driving a little bit too fast, and you hit the brakes thinking that there's a speed trap ahead. Or your boss walks in, and, and the staff is having one of those impromptu conversation break times, and everyone realizes who's in the room and and scurries back to work. You fear the implication their authority has, and so you show deference, obedience, respect. But your caution is not one rooted in relational love. It's rooted in a right fear of their authority. Likewise, there might be a person maybe here at church or or in your community that you've come to know and that you just love. You just love this person. If a need arose, you would want to meet it for them and they for you. You love them, but you don't fear them because they don't hold any authority over you. It is only with God that both love and fear rightly make up the markers of relational intimacy. Humanly speaking, the the closest thing that we can get to this is the relationship between a child and their parent. But even this falls short, doesn't it? You see, the love and the judgment of a parent are limited, finite, 
and flawed by sin. Whereas God's is unlimited, it is eternal, and it is perfect in every single way. When I was in the Toronto Scottish Regiment, I I joined when I was 17. My mom had to sign the papers. (laughs) And not long after that, we had this big ice storm that hit in the late 90s, if you remember that. It just devastated most of eastern Ontario, Quebec, and many of the maritime provinces. And so we were deployed. Out we went. I got two weeks off of school. It was great. (laughs) Off we went, and uh, small town after small town, we went to help in the various humanitarian ways that we were asked of us. And one evening, we were sleeping in this rural fire hall, and we were having conversation, and my sergeant knew that I was a Christian, and he, uh, in all the ways that military conversation happens, was communicating to me uh, why he would never be a Christian. One thing he said struck me and has stayed with me. One of his objections was this, fear God. I don't want to worship a God that tells me to fear him. I fear no one. If you do not understand God's love, then fearing him makes little sense, and it can feel very one-sided. And so it's strange for us to consider fear as a central component to a relationship that at its core has love that is so complete and so profound and so complex that even in our most detailed of conversations, we will come up short in our description of it. But so it is in our relationship with God, love and fear coexisting as we engage in covenant with him as his people. And as people, as people, we are not that different from those who have come before us. Certainly, if we were to survey uh, the ages, we could identify cultural differences, uh, differences in dress and language and literature and art and all of those things. But as humans, we aren't all that different than those who came before us. We are, regardless of time and place in humanity, creatures that share a desire to build, uh, to invent, to create security, to establish families. To know what else is out there. To be in relationship. And as the God of creation has made his holiness, his love, and his judgment known, we share with the people before us the same disastrous series of decisions of having rejected our creator God. Of hearing his word, yes. Of accepting his provision, yes of welcoming his favor, yes, and then turning our back and following our own depleted path. The call to return, this call to reformation, which many Christians have celebrated uh, not long ago, didn't begin with an Augustinian monk in Wittenberg, Germany, 500 years ago. Its origins can't even be traced back simply to Malachi or even the prophet's that came before him. No, the call to fear God and return to covenant faithfulness came from God himself on the heels when the first man and the first woman 
rejected his word. Rejected the word that was meant to rule rightly over them for their good. And since our first father and mother ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you and I, we too, we have seen our own trees from which we have been directed not to eat. And we have seen the fruit and it's been pleasing to our eye and pleasant to our palates. And we too have eaten. So not knowing specifically, but having known enough about my own heart, I think it's fair to say I could read a list of offenses raging from those which we might deem to be innocent or minor to the most offensive. And all of us in this room today, at some point in that reading, would feel the uncomfortable weight of seeing ourselves in that sin. And that's just this past week. And yet where you or I would be weary to the point of breaking, God continues to call out for those who are His. In fear, return to covenant faithfulness. A call to return, a call to reform, a call to obedience, which stems from a heart that fears the Lord of hosts, It was never hard, and it's never far from Israel's hearing. It was something that was told to them over and over. And as we explore Malachi together this morning, we are going to see that it is never far from our hearing either. You see, at this point in the text, we find that the people of God have been returned to the land that they had been promised, the land that Joshua had led them in to conquer, that was to be the land where all of their needs would be met. If they followed the commands of God, they would flourish as a nation. Chief among these would be not to compromise the many aspects of faith and life that were so clearly defined to them. That would be compromised should they marry those outside of the people of God because that would inevitably lead them to the worship of foreign gods. Spiritual adultery is how God would define any such behavior. Well, as we've been spending time in Judges over the last uh, little while, we know where that's heading. We know where that started, and we know the downward spiral, the disobedience, the repeated infidelity in their worship of foreign gods, splits among the tribes of Israel, civil war, to top it off, corruption, of temple sacrifice, if not the abandonment of it altogether. God's system that he had established for his people to set them apart was crumbling, not because of his doing, because of their lack of obedience. Sending prophet after prophet to remind the people and warn them against their dismal behavior. They'd listen for a while, but then always end up worse than the people that came before them. And all this time, God is being patient. He's preventing his people from being annihilated, either by his hand of righteous wrath or through a vehicle of one of their enemies. Then after this cycle continues and continues and continues, approximately 800 years after they first walked into this land of promise, God says, time out. Time out. And they are sent into exile. They're sent into exile, and they are kept there. Now, on their way in, 
they're given some, some words by God's prophets, letting them know that they will be able to come back. They will be able to reinstitute temple sacrifice. They will rebuild. They will rebuild Jerusalem. The spirit of the living God would come among them once again. They would prosper in this land that had been promised to their forefathers. So here they are in exile. Eventually, God's word comes to pass, and they are released back. They come back, and they rebuild. You can read all about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's 80 years after their return to the land that we pick up the story here. But this is a generation that doesn't know, that doesn't remember, that has not seen themselves God at work, God's deliverance. We can think of other portions of Scripture where that's the case. Maybe where Pharaoh, there there came a time when there was a Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph. There came a time among the people of Israel who didn't remember God's mighty hand destroying the nations before them and saving them from the nations around them. And so this new group that doesn't remember seeing the mighty hand of God bend the arc of history in their favor, they are sitting there and they are sulking about their condition and they are simmering in their anger towards God. You see, they hadn't grown as a nation like they had expected. At this point, their numbers are about 200,000. That's the size of Burlington. As a nation, they have a population the size of Burlington. Their borders ran about 30 kilometers by 45 kilometers. To give you some perspective, if you were to start here at the church and you took the highway 401 east, you know where the the 401 and the 427 meet, where you always end up waiting in traffic? That's the length of their entire nation. That's it. And on those borders were their enemies. In fact, they were so weak if they hadn't been a province of Persia by that point, it's likely that they would have been invaded and overwhelmed with ease. They are feeling vulnerable as their enemies flourish. Why is it our crops are failing and everyone else is doing well? For the people, this lack of blessing turned their simmering anger into an arrogant questioning of God's character, of His power, and of His authority. Now, as we understand God's relationship between his people in the Old Testament, we see his blessing poured out primarily in two ways, by virtue of his provision and by virtue of his presence. And both are tangible things that the people could lay their eyes on and say, God is for us. In terms of provision, they would have gotten the land, their their enemies would have fallen before them. Their flocks would have increased, their herds multiplied, their harvest had been plentiful, and they would have prospered at a nation. God would have been for them, they would say. In terms of presence, the glory of God, God's manifest presence, would come down in a visible cloud and take up residence in the temple of God. God is with us, they would say. And the people would know the pleasure of God's provision and His presence in as much as they feared Him and were obedient to His word. 
So you think that the people of God, if everything is going wrong around them, knowing this history, if everything around them that they touch isn't turning to gold but is dying around them, you think that their position would be to pause and not look at God and say, what is wrong with you? But instead say, we must have done something wrong. Let's figure out what this is. But they didn't do this. They didn't look inward and see where they had been coming up short. And coming up short, they had been. In fact, God's word to his people here in Malachi identifies six areas where they had dismissed their part as his covenant people. Just open back up to Malachi if you've closed your Bibles. Open there and look. It'll be around page 801. Six ways that they are are dismissing their part as his covenant people. And just quickly here, there, they are questioning God's love for them as their enemy, Edom, the descendants of Esau, is breathing down their neck and benefiting around them. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. The people ask, how have you loved us? This is the people of God asking the Lord of hosts who has delivered them since the beginning of his selection of them over and over, how have you loved us? If you're a parent with an adult child and that, and that child were to ask you, how have you ever loved us? The absurdity of the question and the claim isn't one that needs describing. The second is that the people are disregarding God's command around sacrifice. Uh, look in, in 1 verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? This is the Lord speaking. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show your favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The third is this. The priests who are to lead the people have turned away from the truth and caused many to stumble. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. The fourth is this. The people are profaning their covenant with God by divorcing their wives, and they are marrying foreign women who bring in and lead them towards the worship of foreign gods. Look at 2.11. In 2.11 it says, Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. The fifth is this, and then there's one more. The people no longer tithe to maintain the temple. Look in 3 verse 8. It says this, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
And the sixth is this. The people claim that there is no longer any value in serving God because in their eyes, the wicked around them are doing just fine. Look at 3.13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Six foundational areas where the people have departed from God, and God is reminding them of the implication of each. Now, it might sound like these six things are kind of one-off things, issues that you might sit down and have a family conversation about. Listen, folks, here are six areas that we're, we're, we're kind of loosened up on. We need to tighten up the ship a bit. But they really can be grouped into three pairs that ultimately have one root. And these three pairs aren't unique to post-exilic Israel, no, sadly. At their heart, we post-cross Christians are equally effective in our ability to disobey the Lord of hosts. Failing morally as they break covenant with their wives, a covenant that included the very spirit of God. Moral lapse was among them. They were faltering in their worship by offering sick and lame animals from their flocks. And they were failing to support the temple with their tithe. And thirdly, they were fundamentally changing who they believed God to be and charging him to be the one who doesn't really love them, that he was incapable and or unjust as he sat idly by as the wicked around them prevailed. Which one of these are we not susceptible to as well? Which one of these are we not equally guilty of on occasion? And be aware of how each one of these elements feeds into the other to create this centrifugal force that pulls us down and away from the covenant relationship that God has called us to. Yes, they were a different people living in a different time in a different place, but they weren't that different from us, and we are not that different from them. Do we sin against God without remorse? without guilt, without conviction. Can we do this if we believe him to be who he says he is? No. No, the answer is no. To sin in such a way, we must alter who God is in our mind. Otherwise, our fear of him would overtake us. And this is what the people are guilty of. And we can be guilty of doing as well. It's likely to happen slowly, incrementally. Maybe it starts with clicking on a website or fudging on your taxes, taking the time to gossip or allowing bitterness to take root. It's like the stretching of an elastic that you pull it and it just doesn't quite come back the way it used to. And then it's easier to stretch it a bit further and a bit further and a bit further till it loses its integrity altogether. When one sin has become acceptable in your sight, you are no longer considering sin as God does. And so the dominoes 
they just begin to fall. Listen to what God says to the priests who are playing a central role in this collective disobedience of the people. Look to chapter 2 with me. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on their faces, the dung of your offsprings, and you shall be taken away with it so that you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. God says, if you are going to defecate on our covenant, then I will take that and I will smear it on your face. And on the faces of your children, and you will be cut off from among my covenant people. In the end, the declaration of God concerning the destruction of those who are not in relationship with him, it is terrifyingly clear. Look to chapter 4 with me. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze as the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The people's sin rightly put them on the trajectory to burn, and in our own right, we, independent of one another, line up alongside them. But in this book that is filled with condemnation, with curses and punishment, unlike anything we can truly comprehend, the Lord of hosts calls on us to fear His name. And He extends to us also a reminder that the life He affords us and the hope He extends us, it exists should we turn to Him, should we turn from our sin. Hearing the words, God is going to spread dung on your face, it's a bit startling. Uh, it's the only place in Scripture it says that, in case you ever are in a trivia uh, competition. But it can cause us, because it's so shocking, it can cause us to not hear the importance of the things that are coming around it. God made a covenant with Levi. These are the priests. These are the ones that are to facilitate the worship of God to the people and navigate the, the blessings of God through to the people. They have an important role. And while we said it was a covenant of fear, it was also a covenant of life and of peace. And even amidst their failings, which were many, God extends to them and to us today this great reminder of his steadfast faithfulness. Look to chapter 3, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6, it says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Look what God is saying here. He states that he doesn't change and calls the people by their covenant name of promise. It would be like God saying to us, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O church, you're not consumed. And out of the reminder God gives concerning their repeated unfaithfulness, he extends an arm of hope. Look to chapter 3, verse 7. Just further down, it says this. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. This isn't new. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The call to covenant faithfulness is no different to us today. No, we no longer need to worry about bringing sickly lambs to the temple for sacrifice or or something like that, for Christ was and is our sacrifice. But we do need to fear the Lord of hosts because our lives are living sacrifices. We need to turn from sin, demolish strongholds of pride in our hearts, and see our worship unhindered by our questioning of God's character or His capabilities. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, chapter 3, verse 16 of Malachi should be of comfort to you today, for together we will be able to stand up under the judgment of the Lord of hosts, not because of what we have done, but because He is the refiner and the purifier of silver, the one who washes with the fuller soap, and He will cause His name to be great in the nations, and He will remember our name in His book. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O church, therefore you, O Christian, are not consumed. And so for you, on that day of consummation, look to chapter 4, verse 2, it says this. I love this imagery. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Joe Carter's winning leap around the bases, Crosby's golden goal celebration, Christine Sinclair's exuberance after the game-winning goal in the FIFA Women's World Cup of Soccer all roll together amount to nothing more than a slow, uneventful shuffle of one's feet compared to the overwhelming and ecstatic joy we will have when we are standing before the judge of all creation and are declared not guilty of having the righteousness of the Son of God attributed to you instead of experiencing His righteous wrath. The calf leaping out of the stall is not bound, but is free. If you are a believer, O church, take comfort and know the joy of God's favor. If you are a believer, Christian, and you have been wrestling with some sin, maybe it is a secret sin for which you have shame. Know that God has not changed. 
His covenant with you and His church in Christ is one of life, and it is one of peace. And this isn't just future tense. It also offers, it is offered to you right now the blessing of being in a right relationship with Him. Return to me, and I will return to you, and you will know my pleasure. It's very likely as well in a gathering of this size that some of us today who, if asked, would not say they fear God and you would not hesitate in saying that. Maybe it's something you've never really thought about or maybe like my sergeant, it's something that you have thought about intentionally and have rejected. If this is you, know this. Malachi gives us a picture of a people in the past so that we might understand what is to come. God's word to his people was in part intended to let them know that someone would be coming whose glory would fill the temple once again and in whom, in his own right, would make their offering pleasing to the Lord. The people were not expecting the Son of God to enter humanity. They weren't expecting him to live without sin, to die a sacrificial death for my sins and for yours, and to rise from the dead. But that's what happened. And God's word to you is that if you would believe and put your trust in God's revealed word, Jesus, your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life along with the others who we heard had feared God and would be remembered by him as a part of of his treasured possession. And as you come to fear the Lord of hosts, here's the amazing thing. You will no longer need to fear anymore. Our text says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him. And those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. May this be a truth that brings peace and life to you today. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who in our own right sin against you, Willingly, knowingly, often without reservation. We take the established promises that you have afforded us in Christ and we abuse the grace that you have extended us. And that you are faithful to us. You do not change and your grace is sufficient even in spite of our sin. And so while we can at times feel your discipline, we are thankful and grateful for your hand of mercy, for your voice which continues to call out, return to me and I will return to you. Father, by your spirit, we pray that you would equip us to do this. Give us eyes to see that which is evil before us. Give us the strength in our feet to walk in the paths of righteousness. We pray this. In Christ's name, amen.